Hello there, and welcome to Preprints in Motion, a podcast taking a deep dive in the fast-paced world of preprints. Join us as we sit down with early career researchers, discuss their latest preprint, and find out about their journey through the muddy marshes of academia. Hit that subscribe button, leave a rating, and find us on Twitter at MotionPod. Support us by heading over to buymeacoffee.com slash preprints. But for now, let's get into the show. And it's a bumper one this week as we talk with three of the preprint authors, Fabio, Anand and Mustafa, and we discuss cell divisions without nuclei. We've got three guests today, which is a, a whole handful. They're all gathered around a table, which is a much cooler setup than me and Emma have, where we're just sat in our bedrooms, um, lifting the curtain on the show here. Best place to start would be for you each to introduce yourselves and give us a little bit of a background as to sort of your journey to where you are now. I, w- I want to let the first authors of the work go first. Um, I, well, I'm Anand Bakshi. Uh, I'm a junior specialist here at the Idolon Lab. This is my first big research position. I was a volunteer researcher at UC Davis in the Fine Lab. But I was a volunteer here during COVID and then was hired on as a junior specialist about nine months later. I am Fabio Echegaray. Um, my, my last name sounds Spanish, but I do come from Chile, where I studied engineering. So my undergrad was engineering instead of biology, which is odd. But then I found biology way more interesting than engineering, and here I am. I did a PhD in biochemistry. Thank you. (laughs) I did a PhD in biochemistry at the University of Sussex in Brighton, and I met Mustafa in in one of the seminars we uh, presented our work, and here we are. (laughs) Yes, actually, I just want to add to that. It was in Manchester? Manchester, yeah. (laughs) Maybe like four or five years ago? 2018, I think 2018, it yeah, yeah, it was the dy- cell, cellular dynamics or dynamic cell meeting of the BSCB, and there we talked about lots about clocks and oscillators. And homeostasis. And homeostasis. And systems, I remember. Yeah. Yep, yep. So that was really good. I'm Mustafa Aydoğan. I'm a group leader at UCSF. Uh, did my PhD in uh, Oxford with Jordan Rath. Uh, worked on... Well, started with working on central size control, which turned out to be, you may think, you know, what's the importance of central size control? I asked myself the same question, but I kept, you know, persistent and insistent that it might reveal something perhaps fundamental. And, you know, the basis of that work was really led to the concepts that are laid out uh, in our lab uh, currently. And we'll, we'll discuss more about it, but that's why. I- it's a shame John, who does our editing isn't here for this one because he is not a biologist by training either he's a mechanical engineering i think is what he did and yeah he, he doesn't show up about biology these days so he's total convert um but he'd have been all he'd have been asking all of the engineering questions i'm sure when he listens back he'll be bursting with questions i would have looked forward to that but well <laughs> <laughs> you've all got pretty interesting backgrounds so we will come back to all that later on but i think for now let's jump into the preprint in question And we've done the thing we keep doing on the show, and I say this every time we do it, but we really do need to stop. But we've picked a preprint that has really cool images in it, again. And this is an audio medium, we can't show them. It's, I don't know why we do it. It's it's such a cool paper. So maybe you could start by just giving us a brief sort of background overview of what it is that we're gonna be talking about today. Yeah, maybe I'll I'll give a little background on uh, how things went down. We didn't mean to do this project, 
it really happened to be because, you know, Anand was on the scope and one advanced getting trained. And he kept saying, you know, uh, in the embryos, the nuclear cycles don't seem to match with the cortical cycles every now and then. He didn't say it's always, but he said every now and then. I thought that's almost impossible because this is like decades of work suggesting that uh, um, uh, cytoplasmic divisions should be in complete phase with uh, nuclear divisions. But I didn't want to, you know, oversee what he said. And I said, just let's test it. And yeah, and that's, I think, what led to the first figure. And the rest was the research. So could you talk a little bit about how cells normally divide for those who are not cell biologists? I'd like to think everyone listening should know how a cell divides, but a refresher would would help some some of us in this conversation. I think it's pretty textbook, right? Textbook knowledge uh, that we tend to think cell divisions as uh, something that's completely, basically entrained to uh, mitotic cycle, which is to say DNA replicates and the cell has to be metabolically ready for a division. It gets licensed and then forms this mitotic apparatus where the chromosomes in diploid cells get lined up and then get segregated. And if there's something wrong with mitotic apparatus, then you have a checkpoint and this checkpoint will prevent the segregation until uh, it makes sure the fidelity of the division will be intact. And that basically ensues the chromatin compaction and then later on will trigger the cytokinetic furrow formation, which leads to basically cell division. I mean, this is how we think of cell division. Yeah, right? and obviously it's very much correlated in the literature with the cell cycle. So, for example, upon mitotic entry in the G2M transition, the most prevalent factor that we know is the pairing of CDK1 with cyclin B, which phosphorylates about a thousand or more than a thousand substrates, uh, including components of the nuclear membrane that, that to, to get dismantled it and then form the, the chromosomes for, for proper segregation. Um, microtubule depolymerization with factors like MCAC which would go and phosphorylate, and then this activity would promote depolymerization at the microtubule ends. So it's, it's this vast change in cells that happens in just a few minutes, uh, in which the cell completely reconstructs itself and retransforms into, into the next phase, which is phenomenal and, and it's beautiful. Interestingly, in the, in the model that we're looking at, which is the Drosophila model, the, the cells that are in syncytial cycles are not like mammalian cells, in which you clearly see a, a plasma membrane and everything is, is compartmentalized in these models. What we see in Drosophila is kind of a, of a gray area between rapid nuclear division and trying to maintain the system coherently. Would you yeah. agree with that? Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think like with the embryos, sort of cell, cell cycle oscillator, uh, yeast cell cycle oscillator, uh, these type of systems have been used as uh, sort of workhorse for the cell cycle field for the past uh, uh, 30, 40 uh, years, basically. And the notion, just to add to what Fabio said, just the notion is that the CDK cyclin oscillator uh, sets certain thresholds. I mean, there's a debate even in, uh, in that notion, you know, how these thresholds are set. Uh, they have this qualitative model and the quantitative model. Uh, for outsiders, it may get confusing, but one argues that everything is dictated by CDK activity uh, rising as a function of the cell cycle. And the other uh, puts in a more complexity to the question and says it has to do with not only cyclin's specificity, 
So you have more than one cyclones. You have cyclone A, cyclone B, cyclone B3, cyclone K, cyclone T. Uh, and, uh, and these have specificities. And it turns out that the substrates also have specificities. And it turns out the specificity of the substrates change as a function of the cell cycle. So it, there's just constant added complexity in the field onto this notion. But the premise of the paper that we have in hand is that if you stop the CDK cyclone oscillator, which is to say that you stop the crux of the enzymatic activity, you still get cytoplasmic divisions. So all of the discussion on the specificity and the specificity changing and enzyme activity changing almost becomes moot. And that's sort of uh, an argument for the um, for an emerging concept, that's the autonomous clocks. And nearly a dozen groups right now working on this uh, related concepts. And I think for many of these labs, it's not the main focus of the labs, but really, uh, you know, findings that have as offshoots from their projects that lead to leading them to show that some of these events happen periodically and do so independently of the CDK cycle oscillator. I mean, this is this is what I love so much about science, because you're talking about cell cycles and CDKs, and I immediately go back to undergrad labs where you're learning all this textbook stuff, and you think it's all well sorted out. And as you say, you know, again, the other thing I love about science is it's it's beautifully simple, but so, so complex. And you can get a really nice overview of something, but this moment you dive into it, it's just layer upon layer of complexity, which is, I guess, why we all have a job. <laughs> As you've shown, that, that textbook view is not quite so textbook after all, because biology seems to find a way to do things that surprise us all the time. Ember and I are both Drosophila biologists by training, so we both use Drosophila in our PhD. So we, we love Drosophila as a model organism. Emma did neuroscience stuff with it, I did immunology stuff with it. Could you talk a little bit about why you use, why you chose Drosophila to study the cell cycle? You've talked about the fact that's been used for quite a long time in that realm. Were there any particularly large, big, important discoveries that you could talk about with Drosophila and cell cycle? Well, if I may uh, sort of intrude, I love Drosophila as a model system for multiple reasons, and they're really historic reasons. It doesn't stop giving, and I say this with full confidence because with regards to, say, uh, the discovery of the sarcadian clock genes, uh, with regards to the discovery of morphogenetic licensing, patterning, development, um, with regards to uh, even uh, things that we don't think was discovered in Drosophila, like the wind signaling, and all of these fundamental toll receptors, I mean, because, you know, we have some immunologists in the room, um, we have to mention these things. But oh. the, the, the key aspect of Drosophila is it's a very cheap uh, model organism which makes a PI happy. Of course, uh, it's not the best model system uh, for doing organismal screens because it could take you years. And there's a, a famous quote by Ed Lewis, who is this uh, famous Drosophila geneticist. The department head, um, uh, and I'm quoting a memoriam from Howard Lipschitz, uh, in P published in PNAS uh, many years ago, uh, saying that Ed Lewis gets confronted by the department head. Ed, you haven't published anything for years, you know. It's been more than eight years, you haven't published anything. And Ed Lewis says, well, I haven't published anything because I'm screening these mutants and I haven't found anything. But the paper Ed Lewis publishes after that conversation, after a few years, gets him the Nobel Prize, uh, along with Eric Wischaus and Christian Stein-Vorhardt, 
on the morphogenetic lysis. So, you know, we have these constant debates in the lab about, you know, how academia is structured and the funding drive and so forth. And I'm sure Fabio and Anand will speak to that later on. But these type of things really prevent us making uh, fundamental discoveries. And if you really want to make a fundamental discovery, a model organism like Drosophila might enable you to do that in shorter periods than, you know, um, say a cell culture system where you, you take the cell out of its context, out of its uh, uh, real environment. Um, it's interesting. I, I do come from a tangential, very tangential field, which is engineering to biology. I'm, I'm kind of an outsider. So I so, some of the things that you say resonates with me, but um, I feel that I my initial values, at least, are very different. Um, I come from a place in which the economical aspect of everything that you do is very relevant. So we are always looking for techno-economical solutions to, I don't know, uh, power transmission or how you build a dam or, you know, all of these societal uh, things. So the impact for me is always in my head. Every time I do something, I'm thinking of what is the impact of this. And in that regard... Working with with Homo sapien models like uh, hu um, you know human cell lines like um, cancers U2OS or RPE cells, it's what it meant for me as impact when I when I come to this field. So then I'm I'm working here in, in Drosophila and I and I do see one point that is very relevant for me at least uh, because I always see that the field tries to find what is happening within, within uh, physiological levels. So the question there is, what is happening in real biology? But usually misses the point on what is possible, right? Uh, so for example, you have these molecules that usually do, does some function, but then uh, what, what else could happen is not really explored, at least in, in my point of view uh, within the field. So these kind of systems are perfect for that because you don't have as many genes as, as you know, mammalian cells uh, or systems. And therefore, it's very easy to, to try out other aspects of interaction that are usually uh, missed out with more complex systems. So uh, for me, it's a learning working in this lab and, and trying to understand complexity from, from a, a lower level. I'm pretty sure it's Drosophila that I've gotten the most Nobel Prizes, right? Yeah, from novel organisms, yeah. It's got at least six. Seven. Seven, Seven yeah. I think. yeah. And I think it is because it's, it's that, you know, you've got a complex system, but it's still relatively simple. And it just, like you said, it just keeps on giving. It's such an amazing system we can use in the lab. And a lot of scientists are surprised that we use it. Yeah, I think with regards to biological timing, you really have to select your system carefully. And the reason is, uh, if you're going to work on things like autonomous clocks, then you have to be in a circadian-free environment, first of all, right? You cannot have the circadian clock influence in your system. And embryos are a beautiful system for that because they don't express the circadian clock proteins. They don't show circadian rhythms. And likewise with the checkpoints, right? So the P53-dependent checkpoint is really weak uh, in early embryos. So if you were to perturb the major CDK cyclone oscillator, you're not going to get checkpointed and you're not going to be oh, apoptose. Yeah. So that's, yep. that really is an asset for embryo. And the other final thing I want to say on this is that evolution 
really pushed embryos to be extremely efficient for time control in that it's a very rapid stage of life. We don't spend 50 years in embryogenesis. Uh, and because it's really rapid, uh, the ev evolutionary mechanisms has selected for things that can handle time control in a pristine way. That's what it seems like. Uh, and so I think it's a beautiful uh, system to address questions of time control, in my view. And I think Anand could speak to the practical, you know, practical aspects of working with Drosophilus, perhaps. Yeah, just being able to streamline your experiments. If you have a very rigid experimental pathway, like my protocol that I've developed for that I use for most of the experiments here, I had everything down to like five minute intervals and the timing of the embryonic cycles just helped me just streamline every experiment and get through everything. So that's where I think Drosophila is very unique, as well as the genetics, um, being able to uh, take visual cues on the mother. Of, so like curly, curly wings, okay, my marker is there. I can create new lines very rapidly. That's something I think Drosophila is very unique with. Oh yeah, for, for all the people who work in, in only cells, so far, we, we <laughs> do tend to select our specimens by how they look yes. in Drosophila. So we look at how the, the wings are shaped or how many hairs on the back do they have and things like this. It's one of the few fields of science where looks really do matter. Yes, <laughs> uh, <laughs> So what was it like sitting you know, on a microscope, you're making observations for something totally different and you notice this little, little thing keeps cropping up. How do you spin that into a full paper? How was that? Because that's the exciting part of science, I guess, right? That's a good question. That's a really good question. How do you transform serendipity into a paper, right? <laughs> well, um, luckily, we were blessed with um, a neighbor, Pat O'Farrell, who had a similar finding in later uh, synesthetial cycles where he stopped the nuclear cycle and one of his figures showed that the cytoplasmic division was kept going. So when I was doing these little practice experiments in my training, uh, and I brought it to Mustafa, and he was like, hmm, maybe we should try some double-strand RNA injections and see how things go. Instead of repeating Pat's experiment, where he did in the later ones, I did it as early as possible and let it incubate well past when an embryo would cellularize, and we would see compartments um, that showed centrioles or microtubules, but no nucleus. And once we saw that, we wanted to see what really regulates these cytoplasmic divisions. Is it just having microtubules? Is it having centrosomes? Or is it just acting by itself? And that is where I think we started the meat of the paper. Um, it was that connection of, of, of sharing our observations with more uh, experienced people surround, surrounding us which led us to, to do the, the, the real methodological work. So yeah, I would say that was a, a fundamental step. Just to, just that, that commentary in which, oh, this looks very similar to what I did 10 years ago. Actually, mm -hmm. this is work from 2008 uh, from uh, Mark McLean. He was an undergrad at Pat, a graduate. But this is relatively old work uh, in which they inhibit the, the translation of the major cyclins in the Drosophila, and then they see a, a very similar phenotype. So it was more like, oh yeah, I see this. Mm, this looks similar to this other thing. 
why don't you take a look at that? It's a great example in the importance of just talking to each other. I think if you're PI long enough, you everyone has this just drawers full of these random data points that they don't really know what to do with. And then someone like you comes along and connects all the dots up. Also, I think uh, Mustafa's ability to be an avid reader um, <laughs> oh, yeah. definitely smoothed things along. <laughs> <laughs> so you covered one of the things I was going to ask is that because you're showing that a cell can divide independently of the nucleus division, what happens to a cell? Why would a cell want to do that? Because, you know, you said you end up with a cell that's got all the bits without a nucleus, which to me sounds not all that useful. Well, I guess uh, we have to distinguish between uh, some of the cytoplasmic divisions versus a cellular division as a whole. So we ask the question, are there cell types that divide uh, without nuclear divisions? That is true. And I can give a couple of examples. Uh, for example, progenitors of erythrocytes, they can do this. And this was a remarkable paper in uh, Niche Cell Biology in 2008 by Harvey Bodish's lab that showed essentially that blood enucleation is not a merit of shedding nucleus, but it's a merit of a special type of division that basically polarizes the nucleus to one end of the cell and then forming the cytokinetic ring as you would do, and then basically shedding one empty cell, which then becomes mature red blood cell, and the other one uh, is essentially seen or perceived as junk but you know at this point i cannot uh, tell if it's junk if it's degraded uh, without careful observations on that uh, but that already told that these type of divisions do exist it's i think the merit in our preprint is to show that this is perhaps a common ability of cells that's normally inhibited in regular cell divisions um, and let me give another example uh masasuto tata in London, also had a paper with zebrafish, so another vertebrate. And in the paper, they have these uh, CERC SRC kinase transform cells. So these are supposed uh, oncogene representative cells that you could study transformed malignancy in uh, zebrafish embryogenesis. Beautiful system for studying metastasis. Uh, and what they show there is CERC transform cells also go through this was a paper in 2018 in Nature Cons. You have these cells, that embryonic cells that go through division where nucleus doesn't divide, but the cytokinetic ring forms, like in the progenitors of blood cells. And then they basically extrude from the epithelium where the empty cell goes into the um, outer part of the epithelium. And the cell with nucleus goes into the what, what you could see, think as blood stream basically in mammalians mm. um, and that may be a form of uh, cell extrusion for metastatic conditions in cancers so in our system we have to say that you know we, we had these observations and discussions with professor Farrell, and then a colleague came about from istanbul elif nurfrat karabar who's a professor at Koch university and she asked us uh, we showed data and everything and she said well, what's the importance of it in Drosophila? Why should the cytoplasmic division occur in wild-type embryos without a nuclear division? And that question sort of tantalized us because up to that point, as basic science people, we don't necessarily every day sit and think, what's the function of this? Uh, we think that it's a perhaps a design principle, but it could occur. But I think Elif had a valid point there that evolution must have a reason for keeping this intact in what you're observing under the scope. And I think that was the realization that 
had us looking at the process a little more carefully when we noticed that the nuclei that stole in their mitotic cycle, and these are very rare class of nuclei, I mean we're talking about 3%, a reproducible 3% to 4% of the nuclei in the embryo goes through this stall, but the cytoplasmic division isn't stalled, so it continues, and then it basically extrudes that nucleus from the blastoderm. So this phenomenon seems quite similar to what they've observed in zebrafish, uh, zebrafish embryogenesis. Are there other types of cells or nuclei that get stalled in their mitotic cycles in other systems? Yes. Bob Horvitz and Jody Rosenblatt had a paper in 2021 in Nature, and they showed that in uh, C. elegans, C. elegans embryos, of course we have this big debate, C. elegans versus Drosophila, <laughs> but uh, in the C. elegans uh, embryogenesis, they got these cells that are caspase-free, so they basically have these mutants where uh, major caspases are depleted, and they do a genome-wide RNAi screen, and I find uh, that some of the cells, and very, you know, targeted specific cells, go through stalls in their nuclear cycle, and they're extruded. Obviously, in that paper, they don't know the mechanism in that how the extrusion, what's the uh, mode of extrusion that happens there, but they reveal genes and they find that things like CDK, cyclin E, and all these cell cycle molecules are involved. And so I think these are very, very telling pieces of a puzzle that I think very many people from completely different fields are observing, and I think that really, the, I think the feat is going to be to uh, piece the puzzle together. And I also want to sort of speculate that what we sort of learned from the CDK cycling oscillator, which is an amazing piece of work for, you know, three, four decades, might just be one, one piece of a huge puzzle, you know, one piece of a huge puzzle of time control. So that's that's how I'm foreseeing. I'm going to, with my immunology hat on, I'm going to ask immunology questions. Has anybody ever looked at how these effectively bags of organelles now interact with the immune system? Because this could be a mechanism of extruding, you know, damaged organelles, right, into a nice little neat bag that can be chomped up by a macrophage, which Drosophila would be a good model organism to look at that in. Um, but has anyone looked at that or just the quality of the organelles within the, the, the cytoplasm of these models? <laughs> I think you're hitting million-dollar questions here. Uh, we have a um, couple of people in the lab uh, currently, including Anant and a graduate student, Andrew. Uh, they're investigating the types of potential stresses that might lead to these nuclear stalls. Uh, I mean, I don't want to further speculate on it because it's still work in progress, yeah. but definitely looking at stresses that relate to organelles are also in our list. Uh, to look at, uh, but also I think this preprint opened up for us a whole program of research, right? From function point of view, from trying to find uh, the potential underlying clock of these cytoplasmic divisions, of what it could be, uh, what the function of it could be, both in Drosophila and other cell types. So soon enough, we will go into uh, cell culture and try to do that in the cell culture system to see whether we have similar observations. It are going to be, you know, next immediate works uh, that's currently following up from the current preprint. Besides the fact that there's going to be a lot of revision experiments for the paper, right? Uh, but that's that's given. <laughs> that's given. Yeah. Yeah. It's just fascinating that the cytoplasmic division can be decoupled from the nuclear division. Like that's something that never, in my mind, for some reason, kind of paired up. Um, do you know how that is regulated? Is that something you've looked at yet? 
Or is that another one of those big next step questions? There are two questions, I think. One is, how do we understand the, the mechanism as of it is now? And for that, our main observations are within actomyosin networks, and that that system is highly regulated by rho activities. Well, firstly, uh, filament actin and, and myosin. Uh, myosin crossbinds uh, actin and then does mecha- uh, mechanical work, chemical mechanical work, uh, by hydrolyzing ATP. And then this this uh, phenomena is regulated by rows and rho jeffs, which are molecules that sit in the cytoplasm and would phosphorylate myosin to, to do work. That is the rho kinase. So there's a there's a whole downstream effect from rho jeffs to rose to rho kinases to myosin. Also, rows are mediate are, are part of mediating uh, the polymerization of actin. And then you, you have this whole this whole emergence of if you have more filament actin, but also you have motors that are cross-linking these filaments, you tend to get structures. But these structures can go without any form, and, and actually in vitro experiments with actomyosin would tell you that if you let that system run just without too many anchors, so to speak, then you would get a droplet of actin because the, the myosin would just pull the, the fibers in just this droplet and wouldn't let them out. But then you don't see that in cells. You In cells you see uh, other other structures like like sheets of actin and similar things, to which that is is because you have something that is anchoring these fibers to, to do work. So, for example, in Lamedipodia, you would have focal adhesions that are at the rear end of the cell, um, kind of converging the filaments, and by the activity of myosin uh, pulling them towards that point, it will get depolymerized and, and go back to globular actin. So that's the mechanical knowledge that we have at the moment within the actomyosin network. And the question now is, how does that translate in, into our system? Most of this work has been done in, uh, I'm going to say 2D cells, because they kind of lay flat on, on substrates, which takes one major component of the, of the whole modeling, which is the three-dimensionality, right? So how... How could they arrange or rearrange in three in three in three D? That's a, a very good question that some labs have been starting to to deal with in vitro. So they have, for example, spheres and they load uh, actomyosin on these spheres and they tend to form rings, which are very similar to uh, to our compartments. But then we do see a middle line in our compartments at very early on stages, for example which uh, are correlated with these early divisions. So I think overall this is, this is suggesting uh, an emergent form, uh, an emergent phenomena in which actomyosin can organize uh, and do these uh, compartments on one side uh, of, the, of the equation, but also having these bridges that are completely orthogonal to the compartment. My hypothesis, which, I'm, which we are trying to to test in the lab is that maybe this is just uh, an emergent property of these uh, subsystems and and then can they can form like this and it's just a matter of regulation so um, you know that um, we also know that rows for example can be can be regulated by the cell cycle 
Um, there's a project called Act 2 that is uh, uh, very um, connected to CDK1 activity. And thus, yeah, uh, you, you get this, it's, it's emergence plus regulation. Um, the cell cycle or molecules amicable to, to these kind of regulations could, could impact when this emergence happens. And if you don't have that, then it's going to happen anyway. That, that is the hypothesis I have and that we talk about. <laughs> and then I, I want to add to it because Sir Fabio gave a really nice overview of the actin. So this is, this is going to form the, these uh, cytoplasmic compartments. But I think the other layer of complexity comes with microtubules, which we know are absolutely essential for this process. And what we found uh, so far is that a source of up, uh, a focus pool of microtubule nucleation, not necessarily centrosomal or not necessarily chromatin-mediated microtubules, uh, is required for these divisions. And I think the key next things to test in that realm, which we are now planning, is testing different properties of microtubules. You know, this regulation of divisions could somehow relate to microtubule properties, could be rigidity, persistent length, dynamic instability, or flexibility. And luckily, the microtubule dynamics field has boomed in the past 10 years, 10-15 uh, years with regards to regulation of microtubules by post-translational modifications. So majority of these uh, properties that I've counted are regulated uh, usually by uh, some post-translational modifications. And now here I want to speculate on the power of using Drosophila to address these properties because Drosophila, unlike the vertebrate, uh, lineage hasn't gone through uh, two rounds of whole uh, genome duplications. As Fabio said, we have, you know, in comparison, uh, maybe one-fourth of the amounts of genes uh, in Drosophila. That means if you have, say, a an enzyme that regulates glutamylation, rather than having 10 copies of the same thing, we might have three or two copies of the same thing. So that means we would have to just uh, uh, do experiments with the mutations of those two copies. And in some cases, you may be lucky and get uh, homozygous viable uh, um, flies, which would mean that you get rid of both the copies of a gene and nothing happens to the fly, but the effect is seen maternally in the egg, which they've called uh, justifiably maternal effect uh, mutants. And so... And looking into these mutants already, we've seen some of these enzymes are quite the maternal effect mutants, um, which will be a really, really interesting path uh, to explore, you know, seeing the contribution of microtubules. I mean, uh, I, I don't want to speculate at this point that it's, it's going to be some other structure that we didn't know is going to leave. I think it's, it's, it's good to... That would be phenomenal. You know, that would be, <laughs> that would be phenomenal. But realistically speaking... It's got to be some, some structures that we already know and love, but are regulated by probably different enzymes, but it's just a speculation. I do love how actin just seems to be everywhere. Exactly, yeah. So that's a very good point. Actin seems to be everywhere <laughs> in almost every organism, and so as microtubules. So these, these genes or these orthologs have, have had to, to be with each other for ages. And then the question is, how... Do they get to, to work together and in how many ways? So to me, very striking facts of this are 
that microtubules are are GTPases, whereas actin are ATPases, so very different sources of energy. There is some evidence in which when you have abundance of microtubules, you get less uh, actin uh, nucleation, and conversely, when you have uh, more actin, you get less uh, microtubule polymerization. I actually did uh, a work in my previous lab uh, when I was a, a grad student, um, in which we were looking at, at centrosome separation, and we end up seeing a, a perinuclear acting formation in U2OS cells, in mammalian cells. And funny enough, when we inhibited microtubule polymerization, this perinuclear acting formation would dissolve. So there, there, there is a, a connection between acting polymerization and microtubule polymerization that we don't fully understand. And I think this work and many others are kind of opening the, the window to this aspect. With that being said, I think this, this microtubule hypothesis is one, of, is one of the major ones that we have in mm-hmm. the lab, isn't it? And, and also, like, uh, you know, the project has really two components. The, the question you asked is not an easy question for us because it triggers many, <laughs> many multiple questions, including, uh, you know, not just how these structures form, but also how they can duplicate on a periodic basis. And I sort of take some inspiration in how to investigate this periodicity uh, from the past research with, uh, you know, how the cell cycle mutants with Lee Hartwell revealed tons of things. They are all named CDC, even if they're not uh, relevant to the cell cycle. Uh, And it was that serendipitous finding from the nurse lab, right, Paul Nurse's lab, where in their screen, we one turned out to be a mutant that gives you small size cells, small yeast cells, but having V1 as a molecule was key because it turned out to be a major modifier of CDK1, which then later on they went to discover. So for us, if we were to do a screen, which we will, uh, if we could identify a modifier, even that's going to be a major step, and I, I think in investigating this periodicity. Uh, uh, aspect of the divisions. Where do I find out about the different bioarchive licenses? This CC, BY, CDXY nonsense is driving me nuts. Hey, that Bio have a resource for that? Ugh, that's your answer to everything. That's because they have everything you need to know about preprints. Sure, they probably have the basics, like info on the preprint servers, but what else is there? There's so much more. Looking to post a preprint, but not sure what different journal policies are? They have a collection to help you out with that. There are meetings around preprints and associated services. If you want to know how preprint adoption has changed over time, there's even a page on that. And COVID? They have a big section on preprints and the pandemic, plus some really cool infographics for communicating preprints. And university policies? Surely they don't have that. They collect uni policies where possible. Okay, okay, they do sound pretty impressive, but is it not a bit of an echo chamber? It can be, but ASAP Bio also engage with people who don't love preprints and have concerns. So we had an excellent discussion on this very topic a couple of months ago. Ugh, is there anything ASAP Bio don't do? Honestly, no, they're so nice over there. They were so quick to jump in and support this show. It's your one-stop shop for info on preprints and open science initiatives. So head over to asapbio.org to learn more and subscribe to their newsletter for the latest in preprint news. If you want a deeper dive into the world of preprints, then look out for the next recruitment of ASAP Bio Fellows.
it's, it definitely sounds like there's a lot of very, very exciting uh, multiple avenues ahead, actually. So, I mean, it's a great thing to stumble across, right, as a, as a lab leader. <laughs> How did you find the process of preprinting? Was it nice and smooth? Have you had any benefits of preprinting? Other than, you know, coming on to a, a world-famous podcast, if I do say so myself. Well, I think the benefits of preprinting um, kind of speak for themselves because people get familiar with our work and hopefully it inspires labs to carry the torch like yes we have multiple ideas on what we want to work on next but that doesn't mean that we've thought of everything so i think we need to make a bigger table <laughs> and pre-printing allows that to happen i mean you sound like quite a collaborative group oh, yeah, we are. have you have you had anybody reach out to take on some of these things i mean labs can't do everything on their own so some of these threads will be picked up by others. Yeah, we we had multiple. I mean, we already had um, a, a collaboration with Sophie Dumont's lab at UCSF, and they really helped us with you know the whole uh, laser ablation experiments, and that was a key aspect in the project. But also, you know, going forward, we do have the intention to hopefully collaborate with Sophie's lab to investigate further into the mechanism. But also um, our, you know, newly emerging collaborations with Lumita uh, Das, uh, who's from, uh, who has a theory group in New York, and um, their group's uh, contribution to investigating some in silico aspects of this process uh, will be quite useful. And also some other ones that we're hoping to develop, because, you know, when you just release a preprint and it's going through revisions, there's a lot of work on our shoulders. Uh, but then later on, when things uh, become more clear, it's going to be a lot easier to pinpoint who and what best to collaborate on, right? It's it's always a decision to pick and be careful about uh, uh, collaborations, but we're all about it. I mean, we never hesitated from collaborating if we thought both us and the group across could benefit from uh, what the outcome is. And I think like preprints for a young group leader is that it's basically your work that you could tell the grant agencies, look, we can do work, right? And so please fund us. And I could I could definitely put my, my stamp on, you know, having the preprint definitely facilitated acceptance rates on the grants. So that's uh, that's a thumbs up. Otherwise, I also want to, I mean, as much as I advocate for preprinting and I've done multiple times, I do want to point out one aspect that is sort of going in my mind whether this is negative of preprinting. It is that, you know, when you put a preprint out, that's how most people perceive the studies as. But sometimes through revision process, papers really transform, you know, in what they report and what they could show. In most review cases, obviously, the main message becomes like a, I think I saw this on Twitter, some pie with pickles on it, you know, like it, it becomes a total random thing, what the reviewers suggest. But but I think in general, they make it, in my experience so far, a lot stronger. You know, they could be excruciating, they could be long, uh, but I think it's well worth the effort, even just considering the type of reviews that come out of the process. So now where the preprint fits here is the perception of the study as is, right? Many people probably don't look through what's published when they've seen the preprint. And I think that could impact impact of the work. That, yeah, that fine line I couldn't quite yet grasp. And I, and I want to, you know, know what you guys think too. <laughs> I mean, that fits quite well with conversations I've had with quite a few people, actually. And it's one of the things that certainly the publishers are quite... Well, the publishers use it as an excuse to talk about version of record and things. 
But I think as a an author, it is something that we all think about, right? Because we want our final version of the work to be what everyone reads. But if you've read a cool preprint, you know, you've read that work, right? You feel like you've heard about it. So when it gets published, you, you're already familiar with it. So you don't feel like you need to read it again. Whereas I think perhaps people do need to remember peer review problematic, but it can lead to changes and it can lead to sometimes significant changes. And it is important that we do actually read what is the final version. And sometimes, you know, reviewers might just have a really cool idea that we hadn't thought of as an author. And so there's this whole extra bit of the work that is in there now. It is one of the few drawbacks of preprints. And I'm glad you've mentioned it because one of the things we don't do on this show very often is talk about any of the negatives. We did a, a pros and cons episode once where I just talked about all the good things. Actually, we shouldn't have called it a cons episode. It's a, it's, I think it's, I think key that we bring up both cons and pros because otherwise it just gives you a very biased view either on very positive things or very negative things. And I do think we're witnessing that in academia nowadays. If I can just chip in, I think I agree with you uh, in the, in the plus side of preprints, but then not, not following up on the work that is published in a, in a journal. Um, maybe this is a good opportunity to tackle on the review process itself, because when you read a preprint, you're, you're ahead of, of the whole process. And then if you just, you know, pay attention and give it a minute, just the review process and how that went on, it could shed light on, on this very obscure part of, of academia, which is you don't know what is going to happen when you submit a paper. And then just to see what was the preprint, what was the reviewing process and what things got changed might be um, extremely informative to us in general. I don't think we do that exercise too often because yeah. we're always running late to dues and, and, and whatnot. So, but I think it, it could be highly beneficial if we need to change something, this might be one thing. Yeah, absolutely. I think peer review is one of those things that is changing quite rapidly at the moment becoming a lot more open which is quite nice to see and that i think hopefully will mean people actually start to maybe at least sometimes read the peer reviews even <laughs> when they are open i don't think people read them particularly it's interesting because i've just come from a meeting where we were talking about all this kind of stuff so there's some good stuff coming up i think so one of the things that i i can't not ask because i, I know certainly some of the people who now listen to this have come to the podcast through some of the other stuff that i'm involved with which is more along the lines of advocating for sort of fluidity in moving in and out of academia and industry and that kind of thing but one thing that that group of people certainly are often worried about is changing professions changing what you do right so as somebody who's come from a background of electrical engineering to then do a phd in biochemistry you might be a good person to ask about this fabio but how do you find that jump and why did you make that jump okay so the last question, why did I make that jump? Um, it was um, it was a combination of factors. The first was that I I wasn't as motivated as I was thinking I would be in engineering, mostly because the, the major problems in engineering are, are already solved. And then when you work in companies, you're mostly purchasing solutions, right? But you don't get to, to make a solution. So that was my crisis back in... 2008, which motivated me to, to look for places in which we haven't solved too many things. And, and to me, um, biology back then seemed to be one of these places, mostly uh, motivated by, by cancer research. To me, back then, it seemed like cancer was like this holy crux that we're still uh, carrying on and w without not a, a clear solution. So yeah, I went in very naively, very 
but motivated by these values, which which is I'm I'm maybe gonna pursue a question that is gonna take my whole my whole life to 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 investigate on, um, and so then then I did that. And how have I found it? Well, biochemistry is really it's complicated in the sense that you need to learn a whole new language of names. It's, it's very semantic. You get all these molecules named by something which is all always Latin rooted or or you know based in Greek words and then you need to come up with with an image of what of the landscape of what these things are doing so um, that that was one of my first barriers to to come across the second one was um, a notion in the field that everything has to be essential so we, we tend to think in this field like Aristotle in the early days of Greek philosophy. That for me was very, very hard to come with, uh, to, to peace, you know, because I, I, I come from this other world in which we are more inductive rather than deductive. And, and that for me was a big change. Uh, almost like I had to remodel my brain to get it in. So to anyone that is thinking to changing fields, then I would, I would say, yeah, you need to prepare for these things emotionally, I guess. <laughs> but I mean, so far definitely the, emotionally. The, the payoffs. Oh yeah, definitely. But the payoff is is really good. I mean, but by all means, this is one of the fields in which I've been most I I felt most alive with, and and just uh, just those moments in in which you see something, and and it's probably you who looked at for the first time. Uh, some phenomena or some observation those are the those are the things i i do this for overall very exciting and and you also kind of came to it a bit later right you came to this you re-entered school at, at 24 which is i mean by that point we've we're supposed to all had our lives figured out um we make our decisions like in 29 which is however old that is 13 how do you find coming to it a bit later Cause when i was an undergraduate the students that did the best were those who were older and had kind of had some life experience. And were, I think they came actually wanting to be there. Maybe that was the difference. But, you know, they, they were the better students. So how did you find that? And was that, that that's quite a brave thing to do. So, yes, I, I agree with you. I think the re-entry students had a sense of dedication that the fresh out of high school students didn't have. But at least in America, I'm not sure how. It is in the UK. Um, the acceptance was not the same. Uh, it was, I struggled finding my first lab position when I finally transferred to a big four-year. And it took me uh, my whole first year applying and cold-calling professors to get one to say yes. And a lot of my uh, other re-entry student friends had the same experience. And in... The grad school system in the United States, you need to have prior research experience. You need a lot of it, not just one year, not just a yeah. summer. You need multiple years and hopefully a paper or a presentation. So I felt, although we were getting better grades, we were just not as accepted. And it felt like they were trying to keep us out. But ultimately, the ones that stuck with it, I feel like we've gone farther. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that kind of comes to... The whole issue of inclusion within academia, really, I guess, because it's often come at the 
sort of uh, gender or race aspect, but there is also this this age aspect, which I think is not discussed as much. In fact, I don't think it's discussed at all really under inclusion. And I, I would I would agree that those people I saw who were for all the people entering an undergrad, I think they probably had similar struggles. And I think like if if I may add a few uh, things here too, in that yeah, I totally agree with with your uh, sentiment there. But also just want to say that uh, life, like if we just have to see. This famous, you know, uh, Tolstoyevsky, that like Tolstoyevsky, no, 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 no Tolst- Tolstoy-esque view, <laughs> right, of judging meaning of life versus meaning in life, right? We, we as academics, like, tend to see everything as goals. Goals, 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 this stage, this stage, this stage, this paper, that paper, and then life ends. I mean, I'm, I'm not there yet, obviously, but just, you know, could foresee from now that you're going to get there and you thought, okay, great, you got these papers, these many citations, this, this, and this award, that, blah, blah. Um, but then what was the mission after all, right? What, what did you intend to do in all of this? And I think, like, just defining a mission in life is, is key in my view. And I think, you know, if I'm sitting here and comfortably saying, even if I, at X, Y, Z point, I stop liking what I do, which I love what I do, but what if I, in 40 years, stop liking what I do? Will I be trapped in this room or will I be happy to just start a bookstore? You know, I, this is totally random, but I think those little things that, you know, we just have to bear in mind and just inject that to the next generation mind uh, otherwise, uh, everyone just feels trapped. You know, uh, if I don't do academia, what's my other option? Biotech. Why? Why couldn't you be a barber? Why couldn't you be like I, I don't know? Why couldn't you be a game developer? Like I, it, it, I think there's a bigger world than all of what we're already talking about. And that's the show, folks. If you enjoyed listening, then hit that subscribe button to get the latest updates straight to wherever it is you're listening. Don't forget to rate us on Spotify or Apple and follow us on Twitter at MotionPod. You can find links to things we've just discussed on our website, preprintsinmotion.com. If you'd like to tell us what you think, then send an email, shout at us on Twitter, or shout at us if you see us walking down the street. This has been a JMJ production, generously supported by our friends at ASAP Bio. Until next time, have a good week.